Hello and welcome back to Ramped Up, the podcast all about disability. My name is George Brouse. And my name is Julia Shenko. And we are talking today to Councillor Little, who, uh, well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, I uh, am a new county councillor. I was elected this May in the local elections for Powys, um, which is a complete new direction for me. Um, I uh, previously and currently am a student studying neuroscience and psychology of mental health as as my main line. So juggling two pathways at once. So that sounds quite stressful. Um, How is it that you got into politics then? What started that off? Um, A number of factors, um, mostly around um, injustice to be honest with you, um, because of the lack of accessibility to the mental health service, the um, way in which um, DWP PIP assessments are conducted and how that's impacted people that I've known. Um, For example, my, my father was one of the many, many hundreds of thousands of people deemed fit for work by the DWP, who um, unfortunately died 11 months later. Um, so one of those statistics and it's events like this that made me realize it it's the policies that are, are governing every aspect of every service that we use that are, are creating these barriers and I got fed up with it and, and lost my temper because marching in protests and signing petitions wasn't enough anymore I uh, was headhunted by by one of the local liberal democrats and um kind of asked to uh, to join them for a couple of years before I made the decision. Um, and it was the the breakdown of the mental health service nationally that that was the final straw for me. Um, lost a number of friends through through suicide, unfortunately, over the last couple of years. Um, and yeah, I found out there was a election going. So I went, well, why not? Throw my name in the hat had no expectation or intention of winning and yet here I am. So how was that sort of, um, I don't want to say half-heartedly, but just sort of going in and then it turns out, oh crap, you're now a (laughs) councillor. How was that? How was that (laughs) realisation? I was, I think I was in shock for about three days and the, the words this can't be true, this can't be real, was just on repeat, like a broken record. Um, It's still not quite sunk in yet. Um, And it's been definitely an eye-opening experience and and a very steep learning curve. Um, But it's been quite enjoyable at the same time. And it's it's opened up a lot of doorways so that I'm able to start instead of shouting and screaming and petitioning for policy change, I can help influence that change and implement that change myself. Mm. Um, fair enough. It's only on a local level. Um, but if I can make a difference locally to, to just one person's life, it's worthwhile. Mm. How long have you been... Active, activizing, is that a word? 
an activist. I've been I've been in protests and petitions since I was uh, a very young teenager. Um, I started getting interested in in social causes just before my teen years, and um, around about fifteen years old, I remember a. Um, a news report coming on the TV. I think it was on Good Morning Today or, or whatever it was back then um, about a, a young girl in, in Palestine and about the conflict there. And she inspired me, the, the strength and the bravery and the courage to, to stand up to oppression like that. And, and that's what started it really for me. I've always been... Um, shouting and screaming about social injustices and you know making things fair i've got very very little tolerance for discrimination and prejudice um i'm very outwardly outspoken as joel you've seen on tiktok yeah. i can be uh, very vocal <laughs> you're ready to speak out <laughs> yes yes um lost a few few accounts for uh, calling people out on on such behaviors they deserve it, let's be honest. Every like anyone who's responsible for a person's life should be held accountable to certain things, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, I think accountability is a major factor that we have to I think reestablish in society. It's it's not practiced enough these days. In the uh, online community I run on for a trauma network. Um, one of the things that we we do preach a lot is accountability. It's um, impact over intent every time. Mm-hmm. If you're, uh, it doesn't matter if your intent is to to make good positive change in politics for the better of other people. If the impact is is having a detrimental effect, then then you need to change things and. So yeah, taking about accountability for that and and for your your position and, and the people that you're you're looking after, it's a major factor that I think gets overlooked sometimes. Hmm. So you've been not only a politician, but you've uh, you're studying at the moment, aren't you? Yeah. So yeah. How is juggling that? Um well, studying is more part of my my normal everyday life for me. Um, before I enrolled onto the formal education, I've always used study as a coping mechanism. Um, so when life gets too stressful or too overwhelming, I'll dive into the internet, I'll pick a subject that I, I don't know much about, but I've got some interest, and I'll start deep diving and accessing different databases and libraries and and I devour knowledge. Um, so, so attending university was, I suppose, going to happen at some point. Um, so it's it's kind of become a normal everyday part of my life. Um, I don't really think much about, to be honest. Uh, it was uh, the decision to go into university was um, a coping mechanism because I'd, I'd had a, recently had a mental health breakdown. Um, it was towards the end of 2017. Um, I just ended a very abusive relationship. 
um, I had a mental health breakdown in which I became suicidal. And a month later, my dad was diagnosed with uh, stage three terminal lung cancer. So very stressful uh, and a traumatic year for me. Um, and I needed something to, to focus on to, to give me little goals in the present time yeah. to, to focus on and a longer goal for something I could focus on for after all of these big, really life-changing events had, had come and gone. Yeah. Um, and so I enrolled for a uh, certificate of higher education with the Open University. Didn't think I would finish the first year because I have a really bad habit of picking up a project and putting it down and starting another one. Um, and, uh, yeah, I ended up finishing that year, got a first class in that. Oh, wow. And decided to go on for my my bachelor's degree, um, which, in total, it, if I had done it part-time, as you should do with the Open University, should have taken me six years, but I did the double course uh, full-time hours and um, completed my bachelor's degree in another two years. Wow. Again, with the first-class honours and um, uh, acceptance into King's College London. Wow. So, yeah, it, university, accessing university and, and studying very much saved my life, really. Mm -hmm. And it's given me something to work towards. And it's a constructive aspect for me to, to use as a coping mechanism because yeah. it gives me something back. Those, uh, that knowledge, those achievements, those certificates open more doors to, to better paying careers, mm. to, to the areas of, of work where I really want to be. Mm. Um, so it's it's beneficial in more than one way than yeah. just being a coping mechanism. And it's helped me rebuild my life in the process. So yeah, I it has been the number one priority for me. So I don't really juggle things around my education. I sorry, I don't juggle my education around everything else. I juggle yeah. my life around my education. Mm -hmm. That comes first and foremost. Yeah. Um so yeah, anything else gets put to one side if necessary <laughs> fair enough so you described uh, university as a coping mechanism coping mechanism but what coping mechanisms have you had put in place at uni in order to help you have you needed any special access yeah um so one of the major symptoms that i experience on a day-to-day -day basis is a very severe level of dissociation which is almost like being in a, in a very heavy daydream sometimes mm. um and so because i dissociate i can lose track of time a lot mm. and meeting deadlines is is a challenge with with my brain unfortunately and so i've I definitely had to, to reach out to the support um, team at the Open University and they were amazing. Um, I told them about my diagnosis and my mental health and my history and they were very understanding and, and empathetic with me. Um, 
they arranged for me to have um, extensions on every single one of my pieces of coursework throughout my entire degree. And I was allowed mitigating circumstances if I couldn't meet those deadlines as well. Um, and there was one-to-one -one tuition available. So if I really did struggle processing the, the text that I was reading, because that, again, is another challenge that I face is, is processing um, information, um, especially when it's written down. Like reading through those those very heavy mm. psychological textbooks, <laughs> um, the the words jump across the page, and it yeah. can take me quite a while to to read a chapter. And sometimes I'll have to read it three or four times before I'll yeah. process it and absorb it. Yeah. So the the university granted me a lot more time than than I would have had if I, I didn't have these difficulties, and mm. that gave me the the space so I wasn't so stressed and under pressure with those deadlines um, and my tutors were absolutely amazing especially in the final two years like um, any problems I had I could email them and and they would make sure that there was the things in place that I needed um, and of course there's the the DSA which is available to to students across the UK which is disability yeah. students allowance um i'm i'm looking at accessing some of those with kings actually to to help me with with note taking and and collecting that information so that i can conduct my essays and coursework without without too much more difficulty than before so the adaptions and and my disability it's definitely been a learning process as i've been going along the journey so when I've come across a barrier, I've gone, oh, I didn't realize this was a challenge because I've not been part of this world before. Mm. I've, I very much shut myself away, agoraphobic, wouldn't interact with anyone or talk to anyone. So learning to walk and talk and interact with the world was a thing. And learning to to figure out where my limitations are with my disabilities is is still a journey that i'm on now um so with my education it's oh deadlines that's a barrier that's that's popped up multiple times so i'm aware of it now whereas when i started i wasn't mm. so it's still a learning curve and it's the same as um my county council work it's I can sit here and go, well, I know these are barriers and these are challenges I have because of my, my disabilities and my mental health. Um, but there's there's things that have cropped up that I've gone, oh, I didn't realize that was a that was a challenge. Yeah. Um, I need to get some support for this. So but again, the support is readily available and yeah. they've got an amazing team locally. So um I think it's definitely having a, a good support network around you is is key. Um, I wouldn't have got to where I am today if it wasn't for the services that I do have around me and the the friends and family that have have you know encouraged and supported me along the way too. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you had a very good experience of uh, education, which yeah. needs to change from what we've heard. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything that you wish could have been better with your uni experience? Well, 
the process of actually accessing um, a lot of the help that's external from the university has, I found very difficult. Like the the DSA forms, um, they ask you to to um, go see your medical professional and get them to sign off on it and on all of this. And I don't think a lot of people creating these forms understand that for some disabled people, even leaving their house to see their, their practitioner to sign that document is a barrier for them. And so they mm. can't complete that form um, and, and get access to that support. So there's definitely issues there um, that I've faced myself. Um, it's one of the reasons why I still haven't um, actually applied for DSA is because the process itself and collecting that evidence, yeah. um, especially when it is a um, primarily a, an invisible disability, trying yeah. to get your GP to understand when you're working with the mental health service, it's like talking two different languages and trying to get that, that documentation together is definitely something that I'd like to see changed and made more accessible for, for people. Mm. I think that's what kind of sets people away from doing university, yeah. especially for disabled people, that DSA is just extensive, incredibly extensive. I applied for it last year in January, and I didn't get approved until a few weeks ago. Wow. So yeah. It has been incredibly extensive. And what doesn't help either is that people... Like for me, I have a processing as well, disability, um, as well as a physical disability in the chair. So people understand the physical side, but kind of brush away the, you know, the invisible disability. And that's kind of disheartening for a few yeah. for someone like me, because I want an education and continue having an education it's just the whole understanding people just don't understand as well yeah. as they should even though they themselves are a medical professional yeah and i think sometimes people can focus too much on one type and you go but you've got one type so why do you have another type you just exactly see that there can be multiple types in the same person I people think. don't yeah. realize that, that things can be connected at any point mm. yeah comorbidity is a... many categories yeah 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 um and if you tick many of the boxes because we all know if if you're disabled you we all know that that list of, of conditions yes yeah. you know yes. and the more boxes you tick the more worried looks they're gonna give you and yeah. and that in itself just starts generating that stigma and I think the fear of that stigma as, as well is, is a massive thing, not just for, for disabilities, but for, for all people who, who experience different forms of it. And yeah, it's a, it's a preventative for people accessing education. It's definitely something that's put me off. Um, yeah. Like form filling in, in and of itself can be a complicated and tedious process for, for most people anyway. You mm. add the fact that someone may have difficulty processing what the instructions are or writing a, a, a clear response 
or you know not dissociating for six weeks yeah. at a time thinking an hour's gone and missing the deadline like I do um it makes those processes very very difficult and challenging um and again something where this is where politics comes in because it's policies that that create these things and create the ways in which they they governed and run so the only way to change them is to change the policies mm. that's not going to be that's not going to happen in the next few weeks few months maybe no. a few no. years no no i'd like to see and again this this is probably very relevant i'd like to see more people um from non-political backgrounds um mm. who are from from those different groups in society that aren't um overly represented in in local and national government i'd like to see more of us you know nominated and, and elected because that lived experience for for everyone is is crucial to understanding how how best to implement and and help people um i didn't realize that you could actually uh become a counselor or anything like that without like a degree in politics i thought you had to study politics neither did i <laughs> i Great, didn't even, i didn't now. realize a county councillor had an allowance either I put my name in for the hat. I went, yeah, Pete, just sign me up, go for it. I'll <laughs> give them a run for the money. I didn't know until after I had been accepted as a candidate um, that the, the position I was standing for election was, was a paid position. I, oh. I did. I had no clue. I just yeah. thought I was so going to give paid, the Tories a run for the money. That. Do you, yeah, mean you get paid with the yeah. um oh okay yeah it's not like it's not the same as a wage um because i'm not employed as such it's community service so it's an allowance that's paid it's the same allowance to all county councillors um that's paid um throughout the year for us um to cover expenses, time, um, you know, working from home. I do an awful lot of um, meetings and appointments from from here um, and a lot of traveling up and down the county. Um, and Powys is the largest geographical uh, region in, in Wales. So it's quite a distance to travel one end to the other. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so we get an allowance to cover our time and our costs and our our, our expenses and and things like this. Um, it works out at minimum wage doing part time hours about twelve hours a week. You know, it's fourteen thousand um, for the year, just yeah. over, um, which isn't a lot. Um, and this forms a barrier actually for a lot of people who are disabled or on low incomes or you know not from from a a position where they can just throw their name into the hat because it's not a livable wage you can't yeah. live on fourteen thousand pounds a year and pay all your bills and things like this so it is often seen as a role as a second job for people yeah. who have already got a, a mainline income and things like this and that in itself i think creating barriers and preventing people from 
putting their name in the hat because it's like, well, yeah, I can be a county councillor, but that would be my only income and that's not enough to survive on. Yeah. And when you're disabled, it's even harder because travel takes as a I found out in my yeah. Yeah, my my election campaign was so challenging physically and it really made me realize how limited I am with my physical health, my mm. physical disabilities, um, which I wasn't aware of before. And again, more barriers for, for disabled people to accessing mm. democracy is is things like simply like doing the election campaign. The traditional style is door, door-to-door knocking and you'll do four, five, six rounds knocking on 1,500 houses. Yeah. You know, that's when it you've done that multiple times, that's a lot of legwork. And yeah. if you've got physical disabilities or, you know, you your mobility is not as as great as other people's, that's, again, it, it shortens your ability to campaign yeah. and, and get out there. So there's definitely issues and, and things to be challenged and, and changed there as well. Um, mm. There wasn't really a a plan for for the type of challenge it would present um, to to the team, and so it was a try and adapt and and make accommodations as as we went and yeah. taking breaks as much as possible. Um, but there was no plan, no idea, no no. Yeah. Well, these are what we can do if somebody who's disabled tries to to become a county councillor there's because not many people have before so they've not needed those policies they've not needed those guidances and those ideas um again something they need the lived experience to help them inform it's frustrating when there are jobs like that and people expect someone to have a degree or some sort of education around politics and kind of brush away the lived lived experiences really I thought that's the reason why one of the reasons why I wouldn't get elected because up until 2019 so the last general election um I was a non-voter I wasn't interested in politics I was an activist and I would you know very anti-politician you know they're all the same they're all liars they're they're all in it for themselves you know the rhetoric we all hear it we all say it Um, I was one of those all of my adult life up until until recent years when I realized if I want to change things then it's politics that are governing everything they're the it's law and politics that that have this final say so it's there where I need to change things in order to change this to make them marry up. I'm just curious, because us disabled community have heard the most ridiculous things about people being who are disabled, whether it's a visible or an invisible disability. What's something that you've heard that you just couldn't believe your ears that you heard? Um, Unless that's not the appropriate question. Actually, there's so many. There's so, to be honest, I've paused, not because I'm struggling to think of one, (laughs) but because there's so many. That my brain's just suddenly flooded with so many comments that I've heard from my, to myself or or to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
like I've had people question whether or not I'm suitable to do to be a county councillor because I, I had a mental health breakdown. It's like everybody, one in five throughout their entire life will have mental health challenges at some point. Yes. You yes. know, it's unavoidable. Um, mm. And it's that constant doubt that being disabled and that's the one that gets, this is the one that gets me. You have a degree, but you're disabled. Thank you. I've heard that so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, just being disabled make me unintelligent. Mm. Like I have in this year alone clocked 260 hours of structured continued development courses and a, a level four accredited diploma in psychological therapies while studying my master's degree. The idea that disabled people are stupid is the one yeah. that really grates on me mm. and the one that we're fragile and incapable. Yeah. Just because we don't have the same capabilities as others doesn't mean we're incapable. And they're the two that I hear most often and, and really will get my heckles up, mm. um, especially the, the intelligent one. I, I really cannot tolerate this this stigmatized view that that disabled people are stupid because it's quite the opposite. Mm. <clears throat> there's there's no correlation there, and it's it's heinous to to you know manufacture and digest it. Yeah, um, I suppose that's why I am. Um, collect so many certificates as I do actually to try and prove a point out of spite yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a point in life where someone makes a comment about how you can't have a education yeah. and you just throw your certificates at them be like here's proof here's yeah. proof for you I'm honestly aiming to do that as well because I've heard many comments and I'm like I just want to shut you up yeah Mental health has been a big part of your life. Uh, mental health issues, studying psychology. Um, what do you want to tell us? I mean, I'm just going to give you the floor here a bit about your um, experience in mental health. To be honest, again, it ties in with the lived experience we were talking about and what you've just said. It's been a big part of my life. Um, I've struggled with with um, a mental health con uh, condition since my childhood um i've been in and out of the service since i was 11 years old and it wasn't until i was 27 that i i got a therapist um through the nhs that that was you know uh one i could build a working relationship with um and so it's taken a long time for me to get the access to to that level of support and and treatment um because as we all know, it's the NHS has been so underfunded and mm. and undervalued for, for so long um, that unfortunately the services are crumbling around us. And yeah. um, again, because my mental health was deteriorating so much, I was on the waiting list, waiting um, to see, see the therapist I'm now with um, when I enrolled at university um, doing my, my psychology degree. Um, 
And so it all kind of just merged together into one path. Like my mm. life just led me down this way. Um, and then COVID hit. Um, and I think that was a, a big shock for everybody. Mm. Um, because of my mental health, I'd spent most of my my twenties, my mid to late twenties, um, struggling with agoraphobia, as I mentioned previously. Um, and so when COVID hit, I'd been in recovery for for a few years, and all of a sudden it was like my irrational phobia of because I still have some tendencies and mm. avoidance of you know big places and lots of people. Um, and now COVID hit. There's a there's a rational explanation for yeah. my irrational phobia, yeah. and everybody's getting shut down and locked away, and everybody's having a dose of post traumatic stress disorder yeah. across the entire world. I think that's what we can surmise COVID to be for everybody. You know that isolation, that lockdown. Yeah. They're being cut away from our friends, our family, from the services we need as disabled people. Um, it was a very difficult time for so many. Um, and I think like most people my age, I stumbled onto TikTok um, as a way to filling the boredom. Um, I started talking about my mental health and my journey, my personal journey there um through the service and and surviving um abuse and and the impact of that on my mental and physical health as well and somehow unintentionally ended up building a community of of trauma survivors and and people who um struggle with their mental health or have mental health conditions mm. um and over the last couple of years, that community's, we've lost a couple of accounts because of me calling out ableism and racism and homophobia and the like. As I said, I'm very vocal and have zero tolerance um, for that. Um, so we have had to reestablish the account a few times. And at one point we had um, 70,000 followers on the mf network account which stands for the multifaceted network oh is it um, it meant something different yeah everyone thinks mf means something else yeah. <laughs> um and and we leave it oh. mf for people to create their own just yeah. click just click to my head <laughs> yeah so this community became the mf network and it's more of a social hub it was more of a social hub um of people from across the world all on tiktok who came together during the lockdown sharing our our lived experience our insight our coping mechanisms with one another sharing what grounding techniques has helped so that we can you know share those resources and tools there's so many people who who need access to to the information and and to the support and mental health service yeah. that that can't get that access so people like myself who have access to a therapist those worksheets i get explaining what trauma is and how it impacts the brain i'll put on a link tree and and share with the community so that we're sharing that that psychoeducation of mental health and trauma mm. 
we share our stories with one another and we share our our ups and downs as well we've very much become a, a community um i've become known as auntie little um <laughs> i can be quite quite stern and and very firm on on keeping the community safe and protected mm. um because we are very intersectional we have people from different countries all over the world so we yeah. have different cultures and so we have to be mindful of people's different cultures because what we understand one thing to mean and and and, and represent in one place but is different elsewhere and mm. so we have to be mindful of each other. We have to be aware of this and we have to be respectful. We have people of different ages, different genders, different ethnicities, you, you name it. We're, yeah. we're as um, varied as, as the disabled community is. Um, tra trauma the community, like the disabled community, is one of the unrecognized, un undervalued mm. communities and marginalized communities in the world that any one person can become part of at oh. any point in their life mm. um you know you can become disabled like that in in flash of an eye and yeah. you you can you know suffer with trauma in the same way and it can have you know lifelong impacts yeah. and it's not exclusive to anyone group of people at all um so the mf network has become a a safe haven a sanctuary and a place of support and learning for for people all over the world from both communities trauma and and disabled because you yeah. find if you know being disabled in the world and society we have brings with it its own traumatic experiences yeah, you know being so isolated and and stigmatized and discriminated against like oh you're disabled so you can't you can't do this you can't do that yeah. you know you must be you know fragile you must be weak you must be stupid it's it's a constant psychological barrage and that has an impact on your mental health yeah. and and yeah it very interwoven community there you can't have a disability without some understanding of trauma. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just quickly, Little, I don't know if you wanted to mention the MF Network. A lot of people who seek the MF Network out is because they've had difficulties with mental health or they know someone who has difficulties with mental health. And a lot of people will signpost that account to other people in order for them to access my link tree and um, i've just reorganized the link tree on the mf network account on TikTok um to separate the the information and support from the research and the the science because i do provide uh, an extensive range of academic and peer-reviewed evidence-based mm -hmm. research behind different um areas and covering subjects like this so people can can learn and study and so yeah i don't mind the mf network being mentioned at all um it's very much as well as being a community it's a resource hub for people to to access those tools and resources and information they might be seeking so 
and as a community that they're an amazing amazing group of people um we've had a number of of members who've had some some you know difficulties and challenges in their lives we Mm. had um one member who unfortunately passed away last year um suicide and we helped um with the the fundraising with that and we do a lot of campaigning together as a as a group as a Mm. community um i think we've raised for different causes um and and different people um over the last three years um just over fifteen thousand between fifteen and twenty thousand pounds for for different causes um and it's all through making TikTok videos and yeah. you know pushing them and duetting each other and 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 just being a community helping each other out um so yeah there's always some petition or some fundraising campaign on the link tree as well um so yeah um i'm happy with that being out there and being cool. known and yeah. if people want to to find that space a safe space for them to to find people who are like-minded or or for them to access information on how they can help themselves or help somebody they know and love with with challenges of their own then that information is accessible for them uh sorry there's a long pause because i am trying to write and think and answer questions all at the same time (laughs) it's something i struggle with is note taking yeah Um, and and keeping a diary that's that's one i've noticed since becoming a county councillor is keeping us uh keeping track and putting Mm. the information into my calendar so that everybody knows when I've got a day available for different meetings I'm so one of the symptoms as well as dissociation with my my trauma disorder is um amnesia so it's not like movie style amnesia um there's various different types Mm. and there's again you hear these terms and people think of movie representations it's not movie type amnesia where oh, i just yeah. i can't remember anything you know sometimes i will have complete blanks mm. um and so i'll for, if i don't put the information in the calendar straight away or if it comes in on a different device and yeah. i have to transfer it over or type it in it doesn't get put in and then my calendar is never up to date yeah and i miss appointments and meetings um and i just my brain doesn't tell me it's there it's gone yeah. um uh so is there any way that sort of you sort of um get around all that amnesia what kind of mechanisms do you use for that um i have tried so many different things and it depends on on what i need to remember to be honest um so dates and appointments i'll tend to scribble on a piece of paper like my desk is covered in pieces of paper and i'll just jot it down on a piece of paper and i have a tendency to be able to remember the numbers so i'll remember the the date just not what's happening and the the time but i won't know what it's for and i won't know what it's about yeah and if i don't write it down (laughs) yeah 
yeah. you know, um, I'll remember the numbers, but I will forget what it's about if I mm-hmm. don't put context in. And I'm still trying to figure out a, a system actually that works for for scheduling my life because yeah. up until now I've not had to do it because you know I've been independent since I was 16 years old I've don't have any family or anything um my friends live 50 plus miles away so I I am wow. very much isolated physically yeah. and again that's a th- more of a trauma response because it's safer to keep people at a distance yeah and so I'm used to being on my own and and just being in the house all the time and not needing to schedule my life um Mm. so with university i took the open open university because it's distance learning yeah it's flexible i can be up at two o'clock in the morning taking my class rather than having to get up go on a bus go to a campus sit in class go through a lecture talk to my you know classmates get back home and all of that traveling time and moving around and using of energy yeah just to go there and do the study um it was more flexible and easier and adaptable to do it distance learning and that's how i'm doing my master's degree as well is distance learning i do it from my laptop so i can do it anywhere in the world at any time day or night and i have that sort of flexibility in my life up until becoming a county councillor so i'm trying to figure out a system how to make all of these um challenges and barriers Mm. dissolve and, yeah. and how to adapt um, that that scheduling. Um, I've tried alarms. I've tried, um, you know, keeping diaries and journals. But the 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 amnesia is a big challenge. I, I think mm. it's going to get get to a point where I may need a a, a personal assistant to to do the note taking and, yeah. and just the admin side of keeping the diary up to date. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, that's going to be, I think, my biggest challenge. Mm. Um, Let me just go back a bit to the university for a little bit. What's something that you wish someone has told you before starting uni? That there is help there, but you have to advocate for yourself. I think that's something that's missing is advocacy. Um, yeah. because there is the support there is the you know the funding there is the the resources there's the tools there's you know the adaptions there but if you don't know how to explain mm. what adaptions you need if you don't have that ability to advocate for yourself then you're not going to be able to access that and I wish I wish someone had, had given me that full warning because it wouldn't have taken me two years into my education before I went, help, I'm struggling. Um, and, and just trying to get by. If I had known, yeah, not just how to advocate for myself, but that I could advocate for myself. Yeah. yeah. Would have made a big difference. Um and even even having that that service available within a university, an advocacy service, where you have someone who can help explain things and put things into your 
your perspective when you struggle to do that for yourself. Um, because that that was, again, it's been a learning curve, figuring out how to explain and figuring out what support and adaptions I do need mm. and what's available because they don't explain that to you. You know, unless they give you, you the list of that information. They won't tell yeah, you. Yeah, unless you take the initiative of doing a deep dive on Google, you get a brief summary of, for example, these are some of the adaptions we can help you with, that we can provide you with. But there's no explanation of what those things are or what they yeah. do exactly. or what they're for or how they can help. You know, they don't explain a lot of it they just expect you to know and mm. that was a challenge and that's also and frustrating for someone who's just starting university who are entering very unknown territory like you mm. don't know the people within that space in that community and i guess you people need time to one adapt to new places and then two to know who to talk to yeah, yeah. And I think that's where I had the advantage with distance learning and the open university, because I didn't have to get used to a new environment. I didn't have to get used to the people around me, because other than the discussion forums, which I really, even now, even though it's part of my uh, graded material, I struggle to engage with. Um, other than that element, it's very much independent learning. You're on your own. You mm. can access your tutors and talk to your tutors and things like that but the initiatives on you to reach out um and so i didn't have to get used to a group of people or get used to their names or know who was who i just had to know who my tutor and my student fellow was two names and two email addresses um and i didn't have to get used to new surroundings new new voices and, and things like that so that took away a lot of that for me um I think if I had gone to a campus it would have been a very very different experience and I'm not sure I would have completed my course to be honest mm. um, because of that reason because I think it would have been too taxing on on my energy levels to to get to and from to adjust to the new environments you know if there was a a heated debate or something in the classroom would I be able to cope with that and um, yeah I think taking away that extra use of spoons really is is what allowed me to to finish that that education and yeah. do it on my terms flexible so you've not got that rigid schedule like nine to five um because when you don't have a brain that functions like the rest of the world you don't function on a yeah. nine to five like the rest of the world mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah i think for campus it would have been very different and those challenges would have been probably the biggest biggest barriers um, mm. and would have potentially led to me not going to on to my degree yeah can you just quickly explain what you mean by spoons please um so spoons it's um a very common theory um that uh, i can't remember where it originates from um 
and it's an evolving theory so there's new theories being adapted from this mm -hmm. but essentially you start up with so many spoons and all of the activities you do in the day cost so many spoons um, so for some people who are able-bodied neurotypical um, you know getting up getting dressed brushing their teeth having a shower costs a spoon mm -hmm. but for someone with um uh a um like yeah neurodivergency or um physical disabilities yeah. as well um and even chronic pain mm. which i include with disabilities because it does disable you yeah. yes. um just getting out of bed can cost two spoons some mm -hmm. days you know, getting getting into the shower, getting dressed, getting your breakfast, all of those can cost five spoons. But if you've started out with 10 spoons, you've not even left your door before you're halfway through your, your spoons for the day. And so it's that it's energy conservation and, yeah. and usage. So the spoons are the energy levels that someone would yeah. use on a day to day basis. Essentially, yeah, um, in the most simplest of terms. Um, there are more extended theories that, that look at um, the fact that not all of the spoons for a disabled person are the same spoons. Um, so you may have ladles, you may have a teaspoon, you may have, yeah. you know, a long handle spoon. And if you've got a task which, say, you want to have a bowl of cereal, for breakfast but you have a ladle every time you're scooping that up the milk's going to fall out of the holes because mm -hmm. the spoon that you have for that task isn't suited for that task mm. so it makes it even more challenging because you've got that challenge where the tools you have don't yeah. match with the the task you, you need to complete it they don't always fit everyday tasks yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard of that bit. I knew about me neither. And I, quite, I, I, will, I will try and find the TikTok video that that explained that one. I came across it last week, and I was like, ah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's good, you know, yeah. adaptation and of evolution of this this theory that yeah. began several years ago, and now there's well, yeah, you've got this, but these not all the spoons are the same. Not all yeah. of them fit the task, and if you've got this, mm -hmm. then you've got to figure it out. Yeah. yeah um so yeah there's that's what i mean by that i often use a battery analogy as well um mm. i have so much battery power during the day and different tasks require different percentage of energy yeah. um and i have to rest frequently to top that battery back up yeah in order to keep functioning How uncomfortable do you feel getting into PTSD? I'm fine talking about PTSD. Okay. It's one of the... So not only is it my life, my own personal experience, it's also my professional lifelong career that I'm heading towards and, and my special interest. So I've kind of taken my life, my special interest, and just went, oh, let's make a career out of this. <laughs> <laughs> The foundation blocks. Yes, yes. Um, using myself as a an example. So, 
Um, can you just give us like a summary, maybe, of just PTSD and just, you know an overview if you can? So, tr- PTSD is um, a clinical diagnosis of of someone who has a long-lasting impact after a traumatic event. Um, so after um, an incident's happened, a lot of people will experience very acute levels of stress. Mm-hmm. And after a month, if these um, experiences and these symptoms haven't um, been processed, then we um, clinically define that as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, now, there's a lot of different clinical diagnoses that connects to trauma in and of itself. Um, and so that's a one sliver of a very broader um, topic, more, more specifically. Um, and it's post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the most commonly understood trauma-related conditions that, that we know. Um, it was, as, as we all understand, it was almost a century ago understood to be shell shock and, mm-hmm. and something that veterans experienced um, going through the war. And yeah, um, this is how we became to understand post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder in its, its roots and its histories. And as you know, time passes by, our knowledge and understanding of the world develops and evolves and advances with it. And our understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder has, has again, advanced a lot further than it was back in the 80s. Um, I can't give you the statistic off the top of my head, but it is a very relatively low statistic, somewhere between, I think one in five or one in six people will will experience at least one episode, one incident of, of trauma leading to post-traumatic stress in their wow. lifetime. So it's a very common mm. um, experience to have and a very common diagnosis. Um, but again, it's not often spoken about and not understood really um and i think that's because it can be an uncomfortable topic Mm. um because when we talk about trauma we we can be talking about anything Mm. Um, we can be talking about natural disasters um we can be talking about one-off incidences such as a a car crash or a, a very you know um life-threatening um operation for example because surgery can be a very traumatic um event and what i think gets misunderstood is a very simple concept that trauma is trauma and it doesn't matter the relative size or dramatics or severity or extremity of the incident that led to that in and of itself it still has the same impact Mm. trauma is trauma and it's subjective so what's traumatic to one person may not be traumatic to another um a good example of this is um uh, a husband and wife in a car crash um the wife 
six months, six weeks later, is diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. She's having flashbacks, nightmares. She's really struggling to process and she's fearful of getting back in the car again. The husband has a very opposite. He's, you know, back into the car. He's, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, he's a bit shaken up. But a couple of weeks later, it's, you know, he's dealt with it. He's, He's going back to work every day. He's not really thinking much of it when he gets into the car. Um, and that's an incident where both were experienced together mm. and it was a shared traumatic experience, but only one of them experienced that as trauma and processed that as a traumatic event. Mm. Um, and one of them didn't process it. And it's that unprocessing and um, not processing that traumatic event um, in our brains that that can lead to um, clinical diagnoses like post-traumatic stress right. disorder um, and those ongoing symptoms that that we we know come with it um, so we can't compare one person's traumatic event or trauma story to another person's and say well they went through this so that's worse than what this person went through because it's subjective it's how it was experienced and the impact on that person and each of our trauma stories are unique and exclusive to us and because we're the ones that experience that and processed that ourselves the way we do no one else can have the exact same experience because it's our experience And so I do feel it's very common sometimes in the trauma community that gets forgotten about. Trauma is trauma. And you can be a veteran surviving war or um, a a grown adult who didn't even realise that your childhood witnessing, I don't know, going through poverty, for example, had a traumatic impact on you. Um, and I say that because we do uh, we are living in a cost of living crisis right now and poverty is a massive uh, epidemic. It has been for many years here in the mm. UK and the science and the neuroscience and the psychology of, of what that does to people's, not just their mental health, but their, their development and their physical health, the impact of poverty is in of itself a traumatic experience. And it's, again, going to be a shared experience where a lot of us are going to be be uh, enduring over the next few years and, yeah. and many, many people already have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a, a traumatic impact on the brain that it's recognised as a adverse child event in the ACEs um, framework. Um, because it can completely alter the child's um, social, emotional, cognitive um, and physical brain development um, and have lifelong impacts leading to mental health difficulties in adult life. So again, trauma, post-traumatic stress, you can't put a a comparison on one person's experience to another, but it is so understated on how impactful it is on someone's life and not just on that one person's life but on the people around them as well yeah. um 
and accessing the support to to process that is is very difficult there's not enough trauma-informed services or or practitioners um mm. around at the moment it is becoming a path a direction that i'm seeing not just health service but local authorities starting to to go down and implement trauma-informed approaches and practices uh, sorry you got interrupted what we were talking about trauma-informed services yeah um I always get on. So this is such a broad spectrum to talk about. And I could talk about this topic for hours. Mm. Um, as I said, it's a special interest as well as being a career and a coping mechanism and everything else. Um, but yeah, I, I'm starting to see the, the psychological and neurological community um, professionals looking into the research of trauma more prominently and its impact on physical and mental health looking at the correlation between different mental health conditions and, and trauma and, and whether there's a, a, a route or a causation there. Um, and this is being noted by local authorities and health services in how they can provide better services for people, um, which leads you back into politics and policy making. And there's this constant interwoven exchange between working in mental health and, and being in politics and creating these trauma-informed services to help people who have, you know, as I said, we've we've all gone through COVID. It was a global pandemic in which we all had a dose of trauma mm. and it was extended period of time, which, you know, takes it up to that post-traumatic stress. We still have people who are really concerned about leaving their homes because they know it's still floating about. And it is, you know, it's, mm. people are terrified still. And it's had such a massive, massive impact on people's health, on their social life, on their financial stability, mm -hmm. which again, impacts mental health. It's more trauma. And so, yeah, having been able to see the, the services implementing these, these new frameworks and heading towards creating a, trauma-informed practices and approaches to their services, to the way they they interact with, with their clients. And essentially, I'd love to, to, to see uh, a trauma-informed society where we focus on, on those, on making things accessible without re-traumatizing and triggering people and and stigmatizing them in the process and this again will include the disability because you can't have a disability without understanding and ex unfortunately this bit of a recording got cut off but i believe little was talking about how you can't really experience disability without experiencing some trauma is in itself so stressful and chronically stressful that it becomes a traumatic experience. And so if we can make that service trauma-informed, then it hopefully become disability-friendly, neurodivergent-friendly, and, and more marginalised communities that left unheard without a voice will start feeling like they can come forwards and put their head above the parapet and have their voice and have their say and and influence a, a more unified society with less aggression.
I can see it as a domino effect. Once one person does something and influences another person, it's just going to flow naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I was always told growing up that I can't fix the world and I've got to stop trying to fix everybody's problems. Yes. You know, one person can't fix the world. And then since coming onto TikTok, actually, um, and I believe this came from uh, First Nations people in America, one person can't fix the world, but one person in every village can. Mm. And that really resonated with me. And it was like, that's, that's true. If one person in each village from each community takes a stand and raises their voice in every village, then that's all of those voices raised together mm. in unison. And that becomes yes. powerful. Mm. So I, I very much, yeah, one person can't fix the world, but one person in every village can. And I subscribe to that very wholeheartedly these mm. days and encourage people to, if you've got the power, if you've got the fire, if you've got the courage to to let your voice be heard, mm. shout it and scream it from the mountaintops. Like, I will give you a megaphone myself. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, that megaphone is TikTok, I feel like. Yeah. Because now mental health is more widely spoken about especially on social media. However, I don't think that translates well into the real world. No. We still have got quite a long way to go before we can even start making a dent into anything, really. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think it's going to take more people with the lived experience getting the the professional experience and academics behind them so that they understand that side and this side and becoming a bridge between the community and the professional academic side of it and merging and interweaving both of those together and if we have more people with the lived experience who are the professionals then they're going to be informing better services based on this rather than this because for all the textbooks in the world I've read on my own conditions it doesn't even make the grade of explaining what it's like to live with that and you can't get that in the service without that lived experience so I'd love to see more people from our communities transitioning and yeah being able to access that education being able to overcome those barriers and and have those adaptions to enable them to to go into any field you know um and then we'll be able to have that lived experience interjected with that and it should hopefully change the way things are done because there'll be people who understand what it's like to actually live through this and live with these conditions and what adaptions are actually needed yeah, it's frustrating being told that they can't do certain things because no one asks for them. No one raises their voice to say it. But yeah, I feel like the disabled community, although it's quite large, it's very quiet and muted, I guess you could say. that. I, yeah. like, tell me the last time a huge news outlet or any sort of media outlet spoke about disabilities. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, it's very it's, few and far it's between. It's very rare to see it. There was this awareness when COVID hit that, um, you know, it was such a difficulty before. They couldn't set up remote working for people mm. before yes. because it was yes. so difficult and yes. so unmanageable and no one would be ever to be able to work from home like that. Mm-hmm. Those adaptions were impossible. Mm. But Those adaptions would have been, would have enab- enabled you know, hundreds of thousands of people with disability to access employment mm. and access education. Mm-hmm. And they were only implemented in COVID because they were needed by people who didn't actually need those adaptions for permanent life just to exist. Mm-hmm. Whereas the disabled community had been shouting and Health screaming and saying, we need this, we need this. Mm-hmm. If you act, make it accessible, we can work. Exactly. And yeah. until, until able-bodied people needed that access, it yeah. wasn't put into place. And I see this with so many other communities as well. Until those at the top need it. Mm-hmm. The rest of us don't get, yeah. and we're dismissed, and we're ignored, and our voices are silenced. Exactly. Um, and mm. that in itself becomes a traumatic experience across the entire community. The disabled community has been silenced for so long that we struggle to amplify our voices now. I also feel like we're being a bit silenced on social media. As you mentioned, you had quite a lot of accounts calling people out on their actions, and you're you know, your accounts got flagged and got reported constantly. And that's the frustrating thing because it seems like people want the disabled community to be, like, quieted down, not to be seen or heard. Like, Like, I've heard a lot of older people, like, you know, much older, like our grandparents or, like, great grandparents saying that disability people should not be seen or heard. Which yeah. nowadays, when you would say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous to a lot yeah. of people. But mind you, it's something we heard through COVID, wasn't it? It was like, well, why yes. do we have to stay inside to protect disabled people? Mm. If they're, if they're going to catch this and it's going to be bad for them, then they can stay people. inside. You know, mm-hmm. it was like we didn't deserve to have a place in society we Mm. shouldn't be allowed out because you know it's a threat to us and and why should everybody else suffer you know well you can become part of this community at any time love any time the same thing with vaccinations why should i get vaccinated to protect someone like them when they can just sit inside and not go out into the real world well that's not how real life works yeah Yeah. so you want to imprison and isolate people to make you comfortable i feel like some people are in their own fantasy world and they're trying to make it real make it a reality we've Mm. become a very self-absorbed society over the last couple of and decades didn't help with that no, no it really didn't in some places it was it was fantastic like my own area we saw the the news reports coming ahead and um people in uh, our local villages covering i think it was a a 30 mile radius had established a community covid response group um by the end of february so by the end of march when we went into lockdown it was already established go and it was set out in a way that every house on every street was covered and there was a a kind of a cell 
of mm. people. So a group of volunteers would cover five streets and there would be one person in that volunteer group that would be the lead and they would come to someone in a wider circle and we created these little groups interwoven uh would have looked like a fantastic venn diagram if you drew it out (laughs) um and managed to cover a 30 mile area with volunteers to to help with shopping and pharmacy collections and and things like this before before Mm. the first lockdown hit so though it was nice to see that community initiative mm. and coming together to protect the the elderly and the disabled and the vulnerable in our local area and they, everyone really did pull together and some of those are still running now you know there's still some buddy services going and and support services and volunteer groups still functioning today you know helping people stay independent in their community good news stories and 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 yeah i think not everybody was was as as self-absorbed as as others were and it was nice to see that that community action together and and community spirit because i think that's very much been missing Mm. um two things that i said on my list um Going back to PTSD a bit, uh, maybe you want, we can sort of cover how that's different from CPTSD. Um, so in the simplest way to explain it, post-traumatic stress disorder is, typically comes after a singular event. Um, CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, is a continued, um, often, prolonged experience to chronic distress or or trauma for many months or many years at a time or several unprocessed traumatic events that are starting to compound on top of one another and it becomes more complex than processing one traumatic event you're now processing a extended (coughs) complex and and multi-layered um multi-traumatic events yeah. in plural and those will all have um interactions on each other mm-hmm. and on you and so cptsd is complex trauma where you have a lot of unprocessed um traumatic um memories and and events to to process and work through and having a a much uh longer lasting impact on people and it can have a different uh it looks very much like the same as post-traumatic stress in its symptomology um diagnostically it's it's typically more than than one event multiple events or um often uh you see childhood abuse and childhood trauma defined as complex post-traumatic stress disorder because this will be repeated events of the same trauma over many months or many years and that in itself creates that complex um, change in the in the brain in the body in the the mental health of, of the child And uh, the last thing is a nice light subject to finish us off. How's the hedgehog? 
Ah, so the two hedgehogs that we have had, um, Taryn was released, put into the rehab run and released last week. Um, there has been sightings of her. She's been coming back to the, the release run to, to eat on the biscuits that still get put out there every night. Uh, she's been caught on the wildlife camera coming back. Um, and the other one, uh, Thorin, he got released two days ago in the back garden where he was found. Um, we've actually spent the last four days um, digging out and renovating the garden to make it uh, dog the top end dog proof to allow so the hedgehogs to nest be. and and. And my dogs won't be bringing me hedgehogs in the middle of the night now, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, they they both went up to wait. Both of them are clear of all bugs and parasites and and uh, on the way to, to rummaging and, and foraging, getting ready for hibernation. So we're very happy with how that turned out. Julia, did you know about the hedgehogs? Or... No. I used to, um, before COVID, I was a volunteer at the local hedgehog rescue. Um, and they're retired now, but they still had some resident uh, hedgehogs in captivity there. Um, and then a couple of months ago, I let the dogs out to, to go do their business before going to bed. And one of them brought me a baby, baby hedgehog. Um, and because dogs' teeth can actually cause a lot of damage, especially to, to young hoglets, um, she had to be taken in into care. Fortunately, I'm trained and experienced in dealing with, with these wild animals. So yeah. when I phoned the, the, the centre around the corner, they went, yeah, we'll give you the equipment. You can look after yourself. We know what you're, you, we know you know what you're doing. Um, so I set up my living room as a, a temporary hedgehog rescue for the last few months little hospital yeah little hedgehog hospital um and just as i released one hedgehog um back into the wild after it was rehabilitated 24 hours later my dogs brought me another one (laughs) and i think your dog's like but i bought you a present why are you taking away (laughs) but uh, i would do that more than a dog to be honest with you because I know cats like to bring things in, but... Yeah, yeah. Mm. The first one was just trying to... Picked it up in her mouth. I've got a terrier. Just brought oh, it okay. in and dropped it at my feet. And looked <laughs> up to, to me like, it's a ball, let's play fetch. <laughs> how, the hell, how did you carry a spiky thing in your mouth? Like, it, it hurts Wait, my hands oh, just holding it. Aren't baby hedgehogs not born with, like, very hard spikes? They're yeah. quite... No? They're born, they're born bald, and the spines are actually hairs that harden. So as oh, so, so they had born, to be in quite a few days yeah. off, then a couple of weeks off before yeah. they bought it. Similar, similar to to um, cat kittens and puppies. The first minute they're born, they don't have a lot of fluffy fur. Mm. You know, oh, it takes yeah, yeah, a, yeah. it, but you've got the the imprint of the the. It's just the skin. You can see the outer surface yes, of the skin. Yes, yes, yes. And it's very pink. And as they grow, they'll get these tiny little white hairs coming yeah. through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'll eventually grow and they'll molt. They'll molt those spines and, and slowly start regrowing them. Um, and they'll and harden and thicken. Yes. Very teeth. sharp. 
very sharp teeth. Like you don't want a hedgehog bite. Yeah. And every 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 hedgehog is different. Like some hedgehogs will go into a freeze response and just not move. Other yeah. hedgehogs will will get Attack, defensive yeah. and they'll they will bite. Like one of the hedgehogs at the rescue, Louie, if you every Without fault, you as soon as you put your hand inside the hutch to start cleaning it out every morning, he would dive out and try and bite you. Oh. And he would grab the rag and you'd be like this, trying to get the, the washcloth off the hedgehog and playing tug of war with the hedgehog every morning because you've gone in its clear cage to clean it out. And then the, uh, I you bet know. everyone at that, that, that um, rescue is like, so who's cleaning out this cage? <laughs> Everybody. I'm not doing it. Everyone who's new to the centre was like, oh, like, I don't want to do that. You can do that one. And we all avoided Louie at first. But the hedgehog next to it, um, you know, opened the cage. She'd waddle out and say, oh, hello. And she'd jump out the cage and (laughs) roll into your arms and just look up at you like, hi. She just loved attention. Dogs and cats, just a peasant of personality. Yeah, I yeah, like the two I've had for that. two very different hedgehogs. Like, I just thought Karen the was very chilled and was to back. roll up, and that was it. No, no, <laughs> people forget that they're wild animals, um, mm. and you know, they're they're insectivores, so they they have sharp teeth to bite through beetle shells and things like this. Um, and if they bite you, they bite you, and they some they carry some very nasty teeth. parasites. Um, worms, beetles. Just they really, they eat slugs. They <laughs> they shouldn't eat slugs because there's some parasites in slugs that can be transferred to hedgehogs and make them sick, and um, like mm. lungworm, for example. Um, but yeah, the, a lot of the food that they eat is uh, insects and, and bugs, and they'll dig through the ground to find it. So during droughts and and very hot dry weather like we've had mm. the ground hardens and they struggle to find food oh. add that to people using pesticides and slug killer pellets in their garden that gets into the bugs and then when the hedgehogs eat the bugs they get they poisoned get as well so there's it's one of the reasons why I, I push for hedgehog conservation we've we had a population of 30 million back in 1950 and there's now around about 1 million. So yeah, we've, we've lost a majority of our our population, hedgehog population. They're actually on the red list for uh, vulnerable to extinction at the moment. Um, Pesticides. uh, Pesticides have uh, habitat destruction, um, hedge maintenance predators like dogs and badgers you know um road traffic and a very common one is gardening people getting their mowers and their strimmers out trimming the hedgerows without realizing that there might be hedgehogs nesting with babies or hibernating or sleeping Mm. underneath the hedges and they'll come out in summer and spring and they'll they'll do their gardens and I've seen a number of hedgehogs with amputations and things oh. like that because they've got caught up in a strimmer. Um, I've actually seen more hedgehog injuries from garden maintenance equipment than I have on the road. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of factors that have caused the, the decline and, and made mm. the habitat very impoverished. Um, but if you head to Hedgehog Street on online, 
there's loads of information on surveys and information on how you can help in the local area and, and make your garden hedgehog friendly, um, which is exactly what we've been doing the last few days since the dogs brought me some. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Uh, Councillor Little, who is a councillor in Wales, uh, unexpectedly. I didn't know that. Unexpectedly. Um, well, yeah. It, I was it, thinking, it like, oh, it's in the UK, yay. Yeah. Like, so yeah. I'm the first um, openly non binary uh, county councillor for Wales, too. So. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't realise that we've got, we've had a, a, a mayor in Wales, and I believe we've got a transgender MP in the Tory party, but we've not had um, a transgender non-binary in county council till now. So, uh, yay! Uh, that's Councillor Little, who is now a politician, a councillor in Wales. Uh, thank you very much for giving up some time in your very, very busy schedule. Uh, we very thank much you for appreciate having me. It. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been nice. Councillor Little, thank you so much for giving up your time to speak with us. It's been wonderful having you. Uh, check below in the description for uh, their social media profiles, in particular their TikTok, and check their bios for those resources. Uh, we'll have one more episode in this series, but until then, that's it for me, George Bruss. And I'm Gia Shenko. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.